The Gospel according to Luke. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them. But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Seated. Thank you, Alan. Grace to you this morning and peace. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This sentence seems like it's just setting the context. It's nothing really that stands out. But for the author of Luke's gospel, this sentence is actually a major turning point in the gospel because Jesus now has a trajectory. Before, he was just wandering the countryside, healing and teaching upon whoever he, he happened upon, and now he finds himself with a purpose. He's headed toward this big city, the center of power, the place he knows that he will suffer and die and be raised again. And so it's from this point onward in Luke's gospel that the cross looms in the distance, casting its shadow over everything Jesus says and does. This is where all of the stories we're reading this summer come from, from this section of Luke's gospel where Jesus is on his way to suffer and die. And what Jesus does during this time is talk a lot about what it means to follow him. It's a question we must ask ourselves constantly because following Jesus, it ends up being different from how we follow most other things. If you follow a recipe, for instance, you're following it because you want cake at the end. If you're following a diet, it's because you want some sort of change in your body or health. When you follow a teacher's instructions, it's because you want something and that something is to get smarter. When we follow most things in the world, we follow them to get something, to get results. We follow because we want a preferred outcome. 
this is how the disciples are thinking at the beginning of the reading. They have been following Jesus, and they think they are following him for something. They wanted to yield results in their life. They want good outcomes because they have been following Jesus. And then they come up short. They don't get the results and success they had been hoping for. They go to a Samaritan village and are run right out of town. They are rejected and they feel powerless. And their minds, their minds cannot wrap themselves around the reality that following Jesus has not brought them success or guaranteed the results that they want. So what do they do? They ask Jesus to command fire down on the people who rejected them. They want to show that they're bigger than this undesired outcome. They want to be vindicated by getting results that they can measure, even if that measurement is a body count. Jesus, he will not have this. And it's not just because Jesus is against violence. It's because he knows that they've totally missed what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus isn't like any other kind of following that we do. It's not about getting positive results in our lives. It's not about getting to control the outcome. In fact, when we follow Jesus, we are led in the opposite direction. For Jesus heads to Jerusalem and the cross that awaits him. And as we make that journey with him, Jesus doesn't give us a step-by-step -step guide to our self-improvement. He doesn't give us a seven-point plan for our personal empowerment or tips and hints and tricks to be a better version of you. Jesus isn't interested in working through gradual progress and steady improvement and building on the good works that we already do. With the cross before him, Jesus is single-minded about naming to us this scary truth that none of us want to face. And that truth is that there is so much, so much in our lives and our world that simply lie beyond our control. The truth is that we cannot guarantee results or outcome for way more than we'd imagine or, or hope, for just about anything, really. The hard truth of following Jesus is that it leads us away from worldly triumph and strength and straight into reckoning with the limits of our own power. But Jesus asks us to name this difficult truth only because there's a greater truth that he wants us to see. A truth that we only grasp in faith as we look not at his cross, but at his empty tomb. And that is this. Our lack of control, our desire to be in control, our propensity to seek violence when we don't get our way, none of that means that we are alone or unworthy 
or unloved. None of that means that our story is over or worthless. The greater truth is that when we don't get the results we hope for, we do not scare God away from us. God stays with us in all things. This is what following Jesus asks us to do. Entertain a God who works through the scandalous mystery of death and resurrection. To reckon with a God like that. And what that means is the God we get is more likely, actually, to show up in failure and hurt than in results and dreams that we had been hoping for. It means that God is less interested in improving what is strong and beautiful in us and more interested in raising us from all the ways death has entangled us. It means God is less interested in the games we play to prove we're good and worthy enough and more interested in freeing us from silence and shame that hold us captive when we suffer. Jesus comes to reveal a God who cannot and will not stand to be apart from us. A God who has a long history of breathing life into where there was no life and making a way where there was no way. A God of resurrection who does not wait for the dead to raise themselves, but simply enters in with a word of promise and hope to us just as we are, a word that summons forth life. And there is nothing, actually, that you need to do to catch this God's attention. No results you need to achieve or outcomes you must lock down as a prerequisite. This God is bigger than all that. This God is already active in your life, present to you in all things with love. This is the problem, by the way, with those would-be followers of Jesus in Scripture this morning. They don't realize the alreadiness of God. The God that Jesus proclaims doesn't wait until we're ready, until we've had time to consider the costs, until we've tied up all the loose ends of our lives. God shows up to us in the midst of our messes with a love that doesn't need our efforts or success to make its way into the world. God doesn't wait for our invitation or understanding, God just waltzes onto the scene uninvited with a love that always goes about raising the dead. A love that touches, transforms, and enlists every part of who we are. This is what following it, Jesus is about. It's not so much going somewhere, it's about being reminded daily that God is already at work in us and among us. It's about seeing our whole lives, even the hard and unresolved parts, as being held within God's resurrecting love. 
and then becoming present and available to the God who is already with you. So I've said that following Jesus, it isn't like following anything else, but that's not quite true. It's wedding season, and Ryan and I this year have two down and four to go. So it's a lot of weekends sitting and making small talk at tables with other people. Now, in most respects, the marriage that Ryan and I have is no different than a marriage between a man and a woman. But there are several unique things that we have to negotiate because we're two men. And one of them is the dance at the wedding reception. Because <laughs> when else do you ballroom dance? <laughs> Both of us, because of our gender, well, we've been socialized to be the leader there. But because we've had a lot of our friends get married over the past couple years, we've decided that we take turns each wedding, who's going to lead and who's going to follow. <laughs> and so I have been learning over the past couple years to be the following partner in ballroom dance. And I gotta say, it's a lot more demanding than leading. <laughs> because here's why. What your job is, is to be present to whatever is happening at that moment. And then to be available to whatever it is that's coming next. You've got to learn to constantly adjust your plans and expectations. To know that there is nothing out there that you can accomplish by yourself. And even to see that on occasion, your missteps can be pulled and twirled and looped into something half-graceful. This is what following Jesus is like. It's not about trying harder. It's not about getting the outcome that you want. It's like following in a dance in which you are but one partner where all you can do is to be present to what is and to become available to what's next and to trust that your partner will always, always find a way to bring grace and beauty out of your successes and stumbles alike. Amen.